to see you this evening. Um, if you don't know who I am, um, my name's Tony, as has been mentioned, and I'm an elder here. Um, it's my privilege to bring God's word to us this evening. Now, if I do flag away partway through, it's because I'm only 98% healed. But I have spent this afternoon running around London because I was accused of stealing a Christmas cake. And then having been discovered, I then spent the rest of the evening building a a stage. Uh, I had children with me at the time and we played one game after and then followed by Lego building. But I say that by way of introduction to sometimes God speaks in a way and through means that isn't always apparent as to what he is saying or that sometimes he doesn't address what we want him to say in a way we want him to say it. And so we're beginning a series of looking at the different types of writing that there is within scripture. Because the book of the books of the Bible, which we've been reminded are 66 of them, they're not all the same. They have different structures, they have different styles, they are written by different people over different times. And tonight I want to spend some time looking at um, the historical genre of biblical books. Now, for some of you, this might be all, well, we've heard all of this before. Can you not just go into any depth about anything? Well, no, I'm not going to. I'm probably going to bore you with facts and numbers and outlines, but I'm hoping by the end of this evening, we will each be a little more better versed in what scripture is like in this area and also have some sort of tool that we can use to apply to this type of biblical genre so that when we come across it in our daily readings or when we um, come together to uh, read together in a growth group or on a Sunday service when we look at the scripture we'll go ah now this is this type of writing And therefore, I don't need to approach it with this perspective, but I can look at it from this perspective and gain a lot more for it. So that's my hope and my prayer for us over the next, however long it's going to take, however infrequent or regular these sessions are going to be. So I don't know whether you are very aware of all the different types of biblical genre that there are. Um, I'm just going to run through some of them. Um, probably most of them actually and just have a little summary about each one of them and the first one which I want to mention is the biblical narrative or history portion of scripture and here we've got a a a lovely picture of one of the authors and actually don't know who that is but never mind Um, and the narrative portion is a great deal of how the bible is composed There's a huge amount of scripture that is written from the perspective of story. People of God telling the stories of how their experiences have been over the years with God intervening and what God has done to them and through them. And one of the things that we should acknowledge to begin with is that the characters that God focuses on in the narrative parts of scripture are not always the best ones now i don't mean that he's chosen irrelevantly but the characters themselves show so many different flaws so many different shortcomings that they really do reflect us now not every character is going to be like every one of us But we will find as we look at different characters in the Old Testament and New Testament that there will be people who are expressing some form of character flaw that we might recognize in ourselves or our friends. It's an amazing thing that when we look at uh, literature, especially narrative literature, we want a hero of the story. We want that black hat, white hat character who is either good or evil. But the characters in God's stories are not always like that. That's the first thing I want to say as we consider the different genres. The second one, uh, and these aren't in particular order, but it's to do with the law 
of God. So the second one is, here we have um, a really incorrect picture of the Ten Commandments because they were written on how many bits of stone? One. But all we see in the films, Moses coming down, or Charlton Heston coming down, with two great big gravestones. But it was written on one side and the other side. But there were two copies. So it wasn't one to five on one and six to ten on the other. But the law of um, God is, is displayed as well. The, the, the do's and don'ts of living, both as a nation and as individuals. And because of that, some of the do's and don'ts are very time and location specific. So the laws concerning the building of the tabernacle, the laws of uh, building the temple and things like that, where you cut stone and whatnot. They're of a time and of a place, but some of the laws, as we know, like the Ten Commandments, will be for all people, all time. So that's a different type of writing. It's a legalistic, it's contractual, it's covenantal in writing. The third type, and this appears in very um, concentrated areas of the Bible, but also surprisingly elsewhere, and that's the area of poetry. Now, poetry is a, bit, is a, a different sort of genre from narrative. It's easier to spot in modern translations because it's laid out in script, in the, on the page differently. So your narrative bit is a bit like a book. It's paragraph and paragraph, whereas your poetry bit is more like a song or a poem written down. But the thing about poetry, as opposed to the other two, is the language that is being used. It's very picturesque. It's very evocative. And so it tells a story or it tells, uh, gives a message in a very different way than the other two. Hebrew poetry is very different from Western or English poetry in a way there's, it's where it's constructed, where the emphasis lies and the fact that there's often parallelism. So there's two lines, couplets. Proverbs is a really good example of this type of poetry where it's is just two couplets, one after the other after the other. But you see a lot of prophecy is written in poetry. There's a lot of references in the New Testament that at the beginning as things are being established, they refer back. And when you see in, say, the Gospels or elsewhere in the book of Acts, where people are quoting from the Old Testament, they're quoting in poetic form. They're referring back to a different style of writing. Another area which we find in scripture is that of the wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature is a collection of sayings and, and sometimes a theological reflection given by an individual or a group of wise people or sages, as I've got written on this slide. Now, they could be short statements that give practical advice, um, such as proverbs or deep explanations of quite difficult concepts um, that we, we have in our lives. I mean, on slide there, I said, why do people suffer? And the whole book of Job wrestles with that, in a, with that in a very specific form. Or why is life so empty? Why does it seem futile? And Ecclesiastes addresses that as well. But again, this crosses over into the poetic form. And although I'm giving you just a very brief sort of um, snapshot of the different types of scripture that there are, there's quite often an overlap, which we'll see as we go through various things. And as you'll come across them in your own studies of scripture. Another area that um, obviously we're aware of is that of prophecy given by God's messengers. God's message given by God's messengers to God's people often at times when they're unwilling to listen. And so we have to acknowledge that, A, what prophecy is like in the sense that it is to a people of a time and would, generally speaking, be relevant to that period of history. There are examples, and you will no doubt tell me that there's lots of them, where we can see prophecy 
and see, A, it's got two levels. It's for the people, but it's also for us. Or it's not for the people, but it is for a future generation. And so that there's quite a lot of different ways of having to deal with prophecy and look at it. But primarily, I believe that scripture as written was written for the people or for the author of the, of the time. And so sometimes what we have to do is when we look at these very difficult passages of scripture is to say, well, what was going on at the time that this was written? Why was this being said? What did he mean? What did they mean when they wrote this down for these people? And then perhaps what it might mean for us. Obviously, there are key events that will occur through prophecy. We're looking forward to um, the destruction of Jerusalem, for example, or the coming of the Messiah, which is one prime area of prophecy. And sometimes prophecy, just as an aside here, and this happened when Jesus was in the temple, he stood up and he read from the book of Isaiah. And if you were to look at what he was reading and follow it yourself, he stopped the prophecy or the writing partway through a sentence and said, today this has been fulfilled. And so prophecy is a very difficult thing to try and grasp. And it's something that when we come to it, we need to wrestle with. I know there are other parts of uh, scripture which we'll just touch on briefly. First one being the gospels. Now the gospels are narrative. So they'll fall into that first section, but they're very, very specific. They're much more like bi proper biography. Um, and they deal obviously with the, the incarnation of Jesus. But as we were hearing with Esther, that, that sort of incongruity between the timing of Esther, so uh, a few chapters and almost a decade goes by and then a great focus on a very short period of time. A lot of the Gospels spent a lot of their time just on a very small period of time. So content-wise, we, we, suddenly Jesus is 30 years old. We don't know very much at all about what happened up to then. But then it slows down or stretches out in terms of what was going on until we get to the final week. And then it really is in detail. So the Gospels are very... Um, different, I suppose, in ordinary narrative accounts. And something, obviously, when we come to them, we need to think about. Also, buried within the Gospels, there is a very specific genre of Scripture, and those are the parables. Now, the parables are a little bit like how we might approach storytelling. So they're fictitious, they're illustrative, but when you dig into them, they have quite often a very specific structure. And sometimes the emphasis is not where you want it to be when you're reading it with Western eyes. We look through a story and we think, okay, we're going to get to the climax, we're going to get to the end, it's going to be here, bam! And actually, the main point is right in the middle, and we overlook it because we've lost something in the translation. But they're pictures of everyday life. They're, um, as Spurgeon would say, sort of the John Plowman type stories that we can relate to ordinary activities in everyday existence. Now I said here that the, I think I did. Yeah, the, the word parable means to throw alongside, um, to come together to help explain or illustrate or augment, not really augment, but give some sense to a truth. But very rarely, if ever, did they state that truth. That's to be found elsewhere. And then, of course, there's the letters that come. And a majority of the New Testament is the letters now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It was said to me once some time ago about the letters uh, in sort of almost tongue-in-cheek terminology that if you were to 
arrange scripture in a sort of sense of order of um, importance. You put the books in an order of importance and you looked at the epistles or the letters to the churches or to individuals, how would you arrange them? Which, what would you say? Well, this is the criteria and we're going to use to put them in some sort of order. And if you look at them, it's the longest one first. And then they get shorter as you go through. And it was said to me that, you know, the best sermons are the long ones and the weakest sermons are the shorter ones because they're at the end of the list, aren't they? But how, whether that's true or not, I leave for you to judge. But the, the letters, they, they, they deal with very specific situations and very specific geographical regions. Um, they challenge or address circumstances that were there of the day. Uh, and, and they give us a whole load of doctrine that is applied doctrine. How does the incarnation of Christ affect everyday living? How does what he says and te- taught affect everyday living and those are there there for us and then of course there is the most difficult part of scripture to wrestle with and that is apocalyptic writing and I don't mean apocalypse I mean things that are really hard to describe the book of revelation and parts of the old testament apocalyptical in their writing and because the authors i believe are trying to describe something that is in many respects beyond words they find it hard to describe what they see but also if you look at the opening uh, chapters of uh, revelation a lot of what we see in the description of jesus is illustrative or it's allegorical no it's not allegorical it's it reminds us of what the old testament was describing and the character of christ his white hair his bronze feet his sharp two-edged sword those things the eyes that are bright they all hark back to old testament narrative explanation wisdom they all go back into there and so if we approach scripture as just well it's just a book we lose so much of how god has chosen to communicate with us he's chosen these genres whether we like it or not to tell us what he is like what his son has done and how we are to live And he's used all sorts of different ways of doing it. Stories, songs, laws, letters, biographical accounts, future writing of things that are really hard to understand. They all come together. And the question is, how do they all combine? How do they relate? And the next slide gives us a a, a little hint of that. There are 66 books um, that make up canon of scripture Matt said they're primarily or about 50% narrative I think that's what you said we have a look at the next slide they're around about 60% huge amount of the Bible is story a huge amount and that's why I've started here is to think about the majority of what we read in scripture, if we look at the Old Testament and if we look at the Gospels, it's narrative. And that dictates to us how we interpret or understand what we read. And I'm gonna give you a little bit of a spoiler, is that narrative is not what we think it is okay just taking away some of the thunder from a little bit later on this evening so if we look at the books of history or narrative just uh, just a couple of slides quickly uh, to tell us what we've got so we've got um gospel and gospels and the book of acts are obviously primarily narrative there's a little bit here and there that is poetic um but that's in the new testament and uh, and those are quite they're quite different from the Old Testament narrative. 
They have a, a, a different sort of thing to say. Obviously, the Gospels are very specific, four different views of the life of Christ to help us fully grasp it and understand it and come to terms with what, what he was about and what he was saying, what he was doing, and how the people reacted and how we should react too. The book of Acts obviously details the, the establishment and the spread of the early New Testament church. I don't want to say it is the beginning of the church. I think the church is pre that, it's Old Testament, people of God. But we see how it fulfills what God's son was saying in the narrative portion of the gospels towards the end. You start in Jerusalem and it goes out and it spreads until it covers the earth. Uh, but it also details, obviously, individual stories. It's quite a narrative. In the Old Testament, the next slide, we have a whole load of books that are narrative in their composition primarily. Now, you might say, well, there's some missing, isn't there? Um, I don't know if you spotted any that are missing. I looked through this list and I thought, well, where's Esther? Is it on there? right there. There are some that don't seem to be there. And on the next slide, we've got them appearing. They are a mixture. They are substantial portions, but they might fall into other areas like Exodus, Numbers. They're more legal documents. They're more law than they are narrative. And so, we, as I said earlier, we've got this crossover. But the majority of Scripture... 60% thereabouts is narrative in its form. And that should encourage us to come to grips with it. So, say that all by way of introducing the subject, but also introducing the series that we're going to be looking at as we look at each of these sort of areas over the coming months, help us to come to, to grips with it, to sort of have a tool to help us get the best we can from what God has said, and as I said earlier, that these are forms and modes of communication that God has chosen, whether they're easy or hard, that's how he's chosen to communicate with us. So let's have a look at some of the things that narratives are. So the first one, if we could have the first bullet point, is that they're stories. It's obvious, isn't it? They're stories. They are accounts of people who existed and lived out their lives, and this is what happened to them. This is what happened to them. Now, they're not stories as in the sense of once upon a time, there was a frog who wished he was a prince, or maybe was a prince. These are, I prefer accounts, because stories is it's, it's heavy with fiction. Um, it is narrative. It is narrating something that has happened. We'll look at it a little bit in a, a, f a few moments of what they're not, because that will influence us as well. The second thing is that narratives are stories about things that happened. Right? It's obvious, isn't it, really? But not everything, not all things. And that's something that I suppose we ought to sort of underline here now is that the accounts that we read in the Old and New Testament are not everything. What happened to Jesus between when he was 12 and 30? We don't know. But one thing we can be sure of is that we have been told all we need to know. What we need to know is recorded for us. And we should not dwell and major on what we don't have recorded for us. Because in God's eyes, it's not important. This is what important, what you have in front of you now. So they are things that happened, but not just anything. But narratives, third point, are multi-leveled. And I'll explain that in a minute. There's... When you look at scripture, you must not think when you're reading a story in the Old Testament that it is just the story about someone to whom something happened and we're told some bits of it. If we go through the next slide, Dave, 
the first thing that we see is that stories are about individuals. I'm going to refer to Joseph later on this evening. Um, and we are told Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of blah, blah, blah. We are told about an individual and the story will then unfold as to what happened concerning that individual. Some stories we know a lot better than other stories. Um, some things are much more easy to remember. Some things are much more hard to really understand what's going on and why it happened. But that is, I've got this a pyramid appearing, but I, I'm sorry, the pyramid is upside down. Because this is the bottom level of the story, but it's the first thing we see. The first thing we see is stories of individuals. That's the fundamental founding issue of narrative. But the second thing that we see, and the next level, the middle level, is that these are stories about Israel or God's children, God's people. So when we look at the story of um, Joseph, Samuel, whoever it might be, it is about the individual, yes. And we were sort of touching on that this morning. Behind that narrative of the individual and the events that happened, God is doing something with the people, with the children of Israel, with the church, with the people of God, his chosen generation. And we have to acknowledge that. How, we must ask ourselves the question, rather, in this story, what do we see also about what God is doing amongst his people? Because it's not in isolation. It's part of that bigger picture. But there's an even bigger picture behind that one as well. And this is the top level, unfortunately, on my pyramid. It's the bottom. And that is that God's telling us a story the redemptive narrative. From beginning to end, the scriptures teach us about God's redemption. And he chooses to work out his redemption through his interaction with his people, guiding them, protecting them, moving them around, placing them where he wants them to be. And through that, he deals with individuals and we have the accounts of what God did with and through and to them and that's how we should approach narrative scripture we should look at the top sorry the bottom the middle and then the top what is God saying to an individual how does God what does God teach us about Gideon's doubt what does God teach us through the account of David's fall into sin or Solomon's questing for wisdom or the kings or the judges or Abraham or Moses. What is God telling us through those individual stories about what he's doing with his people and how does that fit in with his story, the overarching arc of redemption? Or to put it another way, how does God teach us about, through Gideon's doubt, what it is for Christ? What does it mean for that overarching story? If we uh, move on, I think I've just summarised the next slide by saying, yeah, there are three levels of narratives every biblical narrative plays a part in the middle and top level so if you want to turn that pyramid upside down we're feeding from a small story to a middling sized story to the great big thread of redemption through history now there are a couple of new testament scriptures that help us to sort of grasp why it is that i'm doing this because half of you are sitting there with your arms folded and, yeah, okay, thank you. So the next um, verse or two is up on the screen. It's from John chapter 5, verses 39 
and 40. And you can read the words there for yourself. Now, from this verse, or these two verses, we can come to a conclusion, and I've seen this, and I used to think this myself, that every single detail of every single story points to Christ. They witness about me. Something like that. We take a story and we look at it and we pick it apart and we try to extract from the story, from every aspect of that story, what it tells us about Christ. But don't forget our pyramid, whichever way round you want it to be. Because I think here, Jesus is not referring to the ABC of the story. But he's saying, remember, God deals with individuals, all his people, in a redemption story. So everything that happens to an individual feeds ultimately into this redemption story, which is his story. It's the story of Christ. What he is doing through his people, through individuals. Does that make sense to you? Because that's what I think is going on here. And I tell you, uh, the next slide will help us understand why that might be the case. Because there are certain things that narratives are not. Okay? So firstly, a narrative is not just about the people in the Old Testament times. First and foremost, they are about what God is doing through them. So it's not about the events or the words or the places. It's about what God up to. It's not about heroic characters. It's not about paragons of virtue. It's not about utterly brave people. It's not about super wise. It's about God, the unseen hero of the story. They are divine narratives. There may be events, there may be a plot, there might be a story arc, there might be a climax towards the end, a hard is what it was all leading to, but ultimately the principal character in this story is God. So we need to see what God is doing in a redemption story. Secondly, they are not allegorical. They are not riddled with riddles. So many times, and I've, I might be into, get into trouble for saying this, and you may not agree with me. So many times I feel that we look at a story and we go, what does a cruise of oil represent? Why that period of time? Why that length of journey? Why then and not there? Why them and not them? And forget that this is all part of that funnel system where God is saying, this is the redemption story. I'm doing it through people, through individuals. Learn from it. Don't pick it apart. If you think that the stories are filled with hidden meanings, then brothers and sisters... You have fallen into the cultic trap. Cults operate on that system. They say, this is a story, but to, to really understand it, you need this other book that we've written to help you decode what God has said. Be very careful about that. God's work is not always comprehensible. As I said earlier, he does not always tell us everything that has happened and more often than not, in that story, why it happened. The next thing that narratives are not, and that is they are not direct teaching. There are other places in scripture for direct teaching. So, for example... 
they're not using formal or legal document, no doctrinal portions. We look at God's interactions and communication through the lives of individuals. They're illustrations of a larger picture or something which is taught categorically elsewhere. There's an example of this. David's fall into sin with Bathsheba. We know it's wrong. Why do we know it's wrong? How do we know it's wrong? Because the account doesn't tell us. The account tells us what happened. The account shows us the consequences of that and the spiralling of events in David's life because of that. But it doesn't actually tell us what was wrong. It assumes, rightly so, we know what came before. In the law, it is wrong to commit adultery. And yet here we have an example of somebody doing it and the consequences of that. What does that teach us? It teaches us that that's the thing we can expect if we sin. It gets out of control. It goes from bad to worse. Some might not like that. Some might want to say, well, you know, you shouldn't should have a bath at night on the top of a roof, for goodness sake. But no, I mean, that's probably not a very good example of what people might say, but they are not direct teaching. And fourthly, they are not moral in detail. There's a lot unsaid, there's a lot yet to be said, there's a lot that is recorded elsewhere for us to draw out the moral of it. Was it right for Abraham to lie about his wife and call her his sister so he could save his life? The story doesn't tell us. The story shows us that it happens. We need to go elsewhere for that. See what was going on in narrative? It is explaining the bigger picture through example and experience. Let me look at the next slide because we have a very specific one which I wanted us uh, to think about. Actually, no, this is a different one. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but God spoke. What does that tell us? Even though God speaks through a narrative portion, tells us the story of David and his fall into sin, followed by uh, another sin, and he comes to realize that in the end, this is how God has spoken through us, through the experiences of the Old Testament, by dealing with these individuals and having others record their lives. And this was by the Holy Spirit. In case you go away from the lengthy explanation this evening of what this is all about, it's not just stories, it's not there for entertainment purposes, it's not there for us to scratch our chins, go, hmm. These are through the Holy Spirit. They are by the Spirit of God as he moved through the ages. I think this is where we have our text now. Um, on our next slide, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, the poetry, the narration, the law, the letters, the parables, the apocryphal writing, all of it is inspired by God, breathed out. So if there are bits missing, they're missing on purpose. If there's no conclusion, there's no conclusion on purpose. If there's no explanation, there's no explanation in that part, portion of scripture on purpose. But look at why it is, why it is that way. It is so that we might be complete and equipped 
for every good work. You see, when we are out in the world and we're mingling amongst ordinary people, living ordinary lives, having ordinary experiences, falling into ordinary temptations, the ordinary stories of Scripture are people doing the same thing can help us, can equip us, if we know how to handle it, can equip us to do a good work for those individuals. Ah, that reminds me of the story of so-and-so and how that happened then and the consequences that happened to them and how they should have known better because of... And so it goes on and you're working from the individual story up through the what's God doing to the people of God to what's God's ultimate aim of the redemptive arc, the redemption narrative. To be equipped for every good work. So let's uh, move on very briefly then and specifically to an example of this and how we might approach it. And I've chosen um, the story of Joseph, if we can have the next slide. Um, So it's recorded for us in those chapters in the book of Genesis. We have the introduction in 37 and a great chunk of, of Genesis is about what happened to Joseph just highlight some principles and highlight some things that we might observe I'm not going to do a full study on it it's already quarter to eight you don't want me to spend half an hour on looking at the life of Joseph but let's have a quick look so in chapter 37 we see something of Joseph that is a little bit like if we just hold the slides Dave until I say because uh, those are the final questions we see this young man he's haughty is he? He's arrogant. Is he? He's critical. Is he? He's keen to elevate himself over others. Is he? I don't like that interpretation. I like to think of how God is working on this individual and working through him to perform his purposes for his people. But that's because I'm looking at the middle level. If I look at the lower level, what do I see? A man that none of us would choose to do our bidding. We know that his brothers later on will sell him in chapter 39 um, to slaves. They've got fed up with his arrogance and his self-aggrandizing. You're all going to bow down to me. Why would he say something like that? Because in his experience, he's been singled out amongst the family for special treatment. Look at my coat. Look at the way my father blesses me and doesn't bless you. They, we know, sell him into slavery. They trick dad into believing that he's dead. And then... Whilst he's in Egypt, he becomes a successful administrator. Why? Is it because he's got natural gifting? It is a gift of the spirit administration. Is he expressing these things? Is it the message that we can garner from this story is that If you're good at administration, you're going to rise through the ranks to position of authority. No. Because if you look very specifically in a verse, this is an exception to the general rule, we are told why this happened. Because God was with him. And that phrase appears frequently. His skills are secondary. We are told that but we're not told anything about what God thinks about his character. And then later on in chapter 39, he gets thrown into jail unfairly for a crime that he didn't commit. Why? Why did that happen? Because God showed him favour and loyalty. 39, again. Sorry, um... 
this Holy Spirit-breathed scripture that is useful to equip me for every good work is telling me that it is good and favourable to be thrown into jail for a crime I didn't commit. In chapters 40 and 41, he returns to form on interpreting dreams. So his skill at divination or interpretation result in his freedom. In chapters 41 to 50, his administrative skills come back to the fore and he's raised to the highest authority so that he might help his family. That's a very superficial reading of the story. There's a lot else that goes on. There's a lot else that could be said about it. So here are the questions. There are four of them. Number one, who is the hero of the story? Potiphar? Potiphar's wife? The pharaoh? Those in jail, the jailkeeper? Joseph himself? We already know the answer to this question, don't we? I've said it enough times. God's the hero. He's doing something here. He's doing something through the experiences of this man about his redemptive ark. What's the point of the story? Is it don't tell your dreams to others? You get yourself into trouble. Or is it even slaves can get ahead in life? So don't worry about your lowly status at work. God's got a blessing for you and you will rise through the ranks. Only if you're an administrator. Administration is the best of the gifts, as borne out by the experience of Joseph. You're a foreigner in a foreign land, but you'll get the best job in the end. Don't you worry about it. Or is it God is with him, no matter what? Next question. Can't really read it from here. My eyes are bad. What is commended? What is commended? Joseph? Is he commended in the story? We're not told that he was, he did well. Old chap, you did well. There's so much wrong with him. Even when it comes towards the end of the story, not the very end, but towards the end, he's still playing games with his brothers. He's still testing and whatever. But we do begin to see his story, his character change towards the end. The commendation really is the hand of God at work. And Joseph does attest to this at the end. You intended it for evil, but God for good. And isn't that the story of the point of all these, what, however many chapters we've, we've got for this story, is that God takes the machinations of individuals, even though they will be for evil intent, and he turns them around to good. Why? Because he's working amongst his people for the purposes of his redemption. But more than that, and this, is, I think, is a, a really interesting aspect of this story in the time we have, is that by the end of the story of, of this man, we see a blessing on the people of God, Egypt, and Canaan. Have you ever thought about that? The blessing flowed from the people of God to Egypt 
to Canaan. In Egypt, people were built up. They were multiplied to the extent that they were able to be a mass when God showed his delivering power and he could ready them for the conquest of Canaan, a land full of giants, just as he said to Abraham he would. God is working his purposes out. And in the end, Joseph acknowledges this. And the last question, what is the focus? What is the focus? God is the focus. Unlikely people, unlikely means, his grace and his providence are present. What does that mean to us as Christians? So that we can be respectful of his ways, even though we don't understand them, even though we don't have all the details, even though we can't see the beginning from the end. And we can be confident in our circumstances of his provision. That he will always work for the purposes of his redemptive ark through his people, through individuals. And that, my friends, is life-changing. When we truly see what God is doing through narrative and we take our eyes off the individual bits and the arguments over how many angels can fit on the pinhead and things like that, all irrelevant discussion when you think that this is just but a short story and a short time over the centuries of God's dealing with his people, over the eons of God's working out his purposes concerning his son. That's where it ultimately ends up. Which is why, and I don't have this slide at the moment, which is why we know that all scripture in our reading is God-breathed. Every part of it. Not just the Gospels, not just the letters, not just the Psalms, not just Proverbs or the prophecies, but even the stories of the Old Testament are God-breathed and useful to instruct us and prepare us and equip us for every good work. Well, may God add a blessing to our struggles and wrestles with his word as we move forward this year. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing our final song.